Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Chthonia, the world of the dark feminine. And welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Uh, this week, we are going to continue in the realm of uh, the Arthurian and talk about Morgan Le Fay. Uh, this was a, a special request for this podcast uh, from one of my listeners. And uh, it's, very, it's a very good and a very appropriate request because Morgan Le Fay in many ways embodies what we would call the dark feminine. Now, to fully go into all the stories of Morgan Le Fay would take more time than a podcast that attempts to be no more than an hour, uh, because she is a very complicated figure and has an etymology and background that is, um, you know, it's it's there. There's a lot of there's a lot of scholarship surrounding the figure of Morgan Le Fay. There's a lot of connectors. Um, there are a lot of literary references, and, and then the questions becomes how Morgan Le Fay may be connected to earlier pagan figures. Um, and so she's, she's you know, and, and then, of course, she has been used a lot in um, literature, particularly in fantasy literature. You will see Morgan Le Fay appear, um, because in many ways she's, she's an enchantress. She is described as a fairy queen. Some may think of her as a kind of a goddess figure, although I don't think that's the intention exactly in Arthurian legend. Um, and then there's questions about her origin. Where where does she come from? Where does this character actually come from? And and ultimately, what does she represent? Because obviously she is a villainous character in Arthurian legend. But like many of these villainous women of the past the way that people, for instance, might see Lilith or might see Medusa uh, in a more, um, in, in a different light, the way we might see it more in uh, contemporary times. Uh, Morgan Le Fay uh, has also uh, gained a popularity as a woman who is, um, you know, judged to be somehow an evil when in fact she is, she is independent or intelligent or standing up for herself. So, okay, so let's, Let's try to unpack this a little bit. I think the way that I would like to start talking about this is first to do a summary of the main stories about Morgan Le Fay from Arthurian legend, um, and then talk a little bit about some of the background, the etymology of her name, where that's supposed to come from, some of the earliest mentions of her and some of her other connections, and um, and then we're going to look at the themes, the different the the different roles that she has, the different way that she's portrayed. And what we might glean from that, of course, as I do always do in this podcast, um, you know, I, I like to take an academic bent. I like to look at, you know, what what stories are available or at least are out there 
uh, and I, you know, look at some of the scholarship, but at the same time, I'm reflecting on this uh, in terms of the themes of this podcast, of course, which has to do with um, the dark feminine and which in ways in which the dark feminine is often either demonized or just otherwise outright misunderstood uh, for what it is and the way in which that can pervade our culture in ways that we don't even realize. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So, okay, so first let's talk about the main stories uh, connected with her. Um, let me just uh, find my uh, main point here. Um, I've got to... Uh, let me open this up. Okay. So she is... Um, okay, so her... Let, first of all, who is she? So she is considered to be initially as... Uh, she's connected with the Isle of Avalon. Initially, she was considered to be one of nine priestesses that lived on that... Um, island and that that self-ruled and that had magical powers and that were shapeshifters um and then later on she becomes um you know she is she has this this relationship to king arthur she's usually portrayed as his half-sister um although there's others in which she's um as it says here, it says uh, morgan's usually described as the youngest daughter of arthur's mother ingrain and of her first husband uh Gorlois, um, and Arthur is actually the son of Ingrain and Uther, um, Uther, uh, Uther Pendragon, who is this, uh, Morgan's half-brother, and the, uh, Queen of Orkney, it says, is one of Morgan's sisters, and Mordred's mother. Uh, Morgan has an unhappy marriage to Orion, whom she has a son, um, Evain, or Evan, and she becomes an apprentice of Merlin, um, and then she becomes an adversary of the Knights of the Round Table with a special hatred for Arthur's wife, Guinevere. Um, and in this tradition, she's very sexually active, takes predatory, takes a number of lovers, including Merlin and Acalon, and an unrequited, an unrequited love for Sir Lancelot, uh, Knight of the Round Table. And she frequently looks to make trouble for the Knights of the Round Table. So... Let's take a look at some of the individual stories. For this, I'm looking, I'm um, trying to find something that, that summarizes, and I'm looking at the Folklore Thursday uh, post, uh, folklorethursday.com, on the legend of, of Morgan Le Fay. And the title of this particular one, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to excerpt their summaries uh, and then comment from there. Um, the title of it is British Legends, Morgan Le Fay, Magical Healer or Renegade Witch by, uh, let's see, um, and the author is listed as Steve T. Evans from 2018. So, okay, so the stories about her, um, okay, first of all, they, he discusses her as ruler of Avalon. Um, she's presented as leader of nine benevolent sisters that rule the island of Avalon. She's the most beautiful, the most knowledgeable, and the most powerful of the sisters. As well as being a skilled healer, she can fly or transport herself at will from place to place and has shape-shifting abilities. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so he mentions it in later writer, work of later writers. She either becomes a stepsister or elder sister, um, or half-sister, really, of King Arthur. But a radical change happens with her character. As Arthur's elder sister breaks the traditional bond of love between brother and sister, and the nurturing role so often associated with the elder sister towards younger brother. 
Um, instead of a wise and benevolent sources, she involves into a malign sexual predator, hating her brother and his wife Guinevere, forsaking her place at the center of the Arthurian establishment, moving to its periphery, and becoming a renegade attacking the established order. Okay, so she targets the Knights of the Round Table, especially Lancelot, weaving dark spells and plots to trap them. Eventually, she becomes nothing less than an enemy of state and arguably, arguably its most dangerous adversary, until Mordred emerges to usurp the crown, resulting in the Battle of Camlan. Okay, and it's at this battle that, um, that Arthur is defeated. Um, <clears throat> now, again, the early life um, in Geoffrey of Monmouth, who is one of the authors who uh, writes about um, Morgan Le Fay, in fact, one of the first, uh, the uh, Vita Merlini, which we're going to talk about, uh, he makes Morgan the youngest daughter of Gorlos, uh, Duke of Cornwall, and his wife Ingrain. And when King of the Britons, Uther Pendragon, sets his eyes on Ingrain, he becomes infatuated. And then there's a whole story about how um, he ends up, you know, being able to be, go in uh, disguised as Gorlos and makes love to his wife, uh, um, to Ingrain, and then Arthur is conceived. Um as while this was taking place, Gorlis was killed battling Uther's army. After satisfying his lust, and on learning of the death of the duke, took Ingrain to be his wife. Married her eldest daughter, um, Morgaus, to King Lot of Lothian, and the next eldest, uh, Elaine, to King Nentrance of Garlot. Morgan was the youngest and sent to a nunnery. Morgan hated Uther because she knew what happened the night her father died and resented Arthur as the product of his lust. At the nunnery, she was introduced to astrology, dark arts of necromancy, and skills of healing, and became highly adept in this field. Interesting thing to learn at a nunnery. Although, I remember taking a Shakespeare course once, and um, our professor at the time had said that the word nunnery does not always mean a convent. Uh, nunnery sometimes also referred to like a house of ill repute, just the opposite of what you would think a nunnery would be. So it's interesting that um, in, this, in this kind of environment, she's introduced to, um, to magic of different kinds. And as her skill and knowledge grew, people began to call her Morgan Le Fay. Eventually, she joined Arthur's court and became a lady-in-waiting to Queen Guinevere. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so she says she was, uh, most part, she was considerate and courteous, angered when, became, and when she was angered, became vindictive, spiteful, and obstinate. Uh, alleged to be the lewdest and most lustful woman in Britain, taking many lovers. There's a story of her um, having here about um, Guinevere's nephew, uh, Guimar, found her while she was at work in her bedroom, spinning golden thread, and they fell in love. <clears throat> they try to keep their affair secret, but eventually Guinevere finds out and banished her kinsman from the court, which um, supposedly is, is, at least in this particular version, the root of uh, uh, Morgan's resentment towards Guinevere and increase the animosity towards Arthur. So you have this, this, this built-up resentment for um, reasons that are, that are justified uh, in this way. Um, so she had left court, um, and she eventually returned to create a, a strategic political alliance. Arthur married her to King Urien of Reged, causing further resentment. Um, she had a son by him named Owen, but began secretly plotting the downfall of her husband and her brother. Okay. So then there's the story of the Lady of the Lake. Now, of course, King Arthur obtains his magical sword, um, or he pulls the stone in um, the stone Excalibur. Uh, he, he pulled the stone um, from the stone in, in, in battle, so he, he manages to, um, he pulls Excalibur out of the stone, which is what makes him, uh, uh, gives him, 
you know, you know basically gives him the right of, of kingship. So whoever can pull the, the, the sword out of the stone becomes king. Um, but then when he breaks the sto- sword in battle, uh, he needs a replacement. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And Merlin takes him to the Lady of the Lake and asks him whether or not he uh, prefers a sword or a scabbard. He says, well, he prefers the sword. And uh, Merlin says, well, then you're a fool because the scabbard is worth 10 of the sword because while you wear it, no matter how you're wounded, you will not lose blood. Um, So... Of course, uh, at one point, um, it was um, Morgan has a lover, um, Akalon. Uh, she, um, you know, so she had, uh, and Morgan knew, of course, about that this particular scabbard would, would keep him safe. So she ends up creating a fake one to give to her brother and gives her lover, Akalon, when he is in battle with Arthur, gives him the real one uh, and you know, get, you know, the one that will keep him from being harmed. So then Arthur suddenly realizes that, you know, that the, the trick that's happened. Um, so, uh, the late, but the, of course the lady of the lake intervenes, casting a spell that makes Akalon drop his sword and Arthur grabs the blade and takes the scabbard from Akalon. And now, um, then he was able to defeat his opponent. Okay. So, um, so with Akalon at his mercy, Arthur demands an explanation of how he got Excalibur and its scabbard. Akalon told him of Morgan's plot and how she hated and despised him, which really shocks Arthur. Okay. <clears throat> and um says he had loved and trusted her, but now, of course, she had betrayed him. Um, so, um, you know, he sent Akalon's body to Morgan and, weak from loss of blood, decided to rest and recuperate. Um... So, uh, and in the meantime, she was intending to murder her own husband, King Urien, at Camelot, but her son stopped and uh, stopped her from carrying out the fatal blow. And Owen would have killed his mother, but claimed she had been afflicted by a sudden bout of madness, and believing her, he spared her life. Okay. So we see, um, you know, we, we see this, we see, first we see her treachery in trying to, to save her lover, and then we see her um, trying to kill the, the husband that she does not want. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, so they, and of course, you know, the people after this, it says that when she, when they found out about Morgan's plot to take the crown and in the fight with Akalon, uh, they accuse her of treason, but she has, she has left the court and she has moved out onto, uh, the periphery. Um, so she claims that she is going to try to, um, you know, make amends by bringing a very handsome, having a, a one of her uh, girl servants to Camelot, bringing him a handsome cloak as a peace gift, begging forgiveness. It was studded with precious gems and embroidered with threads of gold and silver, and Arthur was impressed. But as he was about to try it on, the Lady of the Lake says, um, don't try it on yourself or let any of your knights until she who has brought you this gift wears it herself. So he does, and of course the girl protests, but as soon as she puts it on, she's reduced to ashes. Now, this is actually reminiscent of the story of Medea, the um, the witch who, when uh, Jason 
is, um, you know, her, you know, she marries Jason of, of, of the Argonautica. And, you know, of course, she's, she also is very treacherous, Medea, and she's, you know, killed Jason's, uh, kill, killed, killed her own brother and betrayed her father to go out to run off with Jason. And she has children with him, but then he decides he's going to make a more favorable marriage with the daughter of King Creon. And so Medea can, you know, just kind of go scratch after that. So Medea, uh, being, you know, not someone to take this lightly, decides to send a beautiful cloak or a beautiful dress as as a wedding gift to um, Jason's new bride, which, you know, they're, you know, oh, you know, know, like she's going to make peace, but as soon as the bride puts it on, she's immolated in flame, and when her her father tries to put it out, he's also immolated. So he ends up, she ends up... um, getting getting some of her revenge that way this is very reminiscent of that the the cloak that will you know the beautiful cloak that will reduce you to ashes and uh so so there's more treachery and you know so she it says then that uh, morgan then builds her realm uh, on the edge of arthur's and immerses herself further into magic and sorcery and at every opportunity she uh seeks to capture and imprison any of the knights who came, especially Lancelot, who she's captured several times. She had an unrequited love for him, but her intention was also to hurt Guinevere and Arthur. So at one point, during his confinement, Lancelot painted a mural uh, depicting his life on the wall of the prison, which included his love affair with Guinevere. And after he had been released, Arthur and his knights came across Morgan's castle. He had heard nothing of Morgan for years and believed her to be dead. Seeming to forget and forgiving past wrongs, he was overjoyed to discover she was alive and invited her return to Camelot, but she told him, Do not ask this of me. I will never return to court. When I finally leave this place, I will go to the Isle of Avalon where the women live who, I, where, where the women live who know all the magic in the world. So she guides him around the castle and shows him and makes sure she shows him the murals that Lancelot painted. And he realized that Guinevere and Lancelot had an affair and that made him upset. And she encourages him to take vengeance on the betrayal of trust by the two people closest to him. And so this eventually leads to a reluctant war with Lancelot, who would retreat with Guinevere. And Mordred was left as steward of the kingdom when he went to war, but then Mordred betrays him and usurps the crown. Um, if, um, <clears throat> But so he was forced to return to the confrontation at the Battle of Camelan, but where he, killed, where he kills Mordred, but not having the scabbard of Excalibur, was more mortally wounded. Um, so, as you can see, she is the, she's a menace to Arthur throughout his life, and she's somebody who he thinks is an ally, um, but isn't. So, okay, so that's, those are, those are the summary of the main narratives of her. Now, I should add at the end that when Mar- Arthur is mortally wounded, Morgan actually now switches gears, offers to heal him, takes him away to the Isle of Avalon to heal his wounds in, in waiting for some kind of messianic return, if you will, of King Arthur to rule Britain another day. So, so okay, so that's, those are the main stories about Morgan Le Fay. So what, where does that leave us with um, talking about who she is? Okay. Um, well, first, let's see. Let's, let's, um, let's, look at, let's look at her name. Let's look at the etymology that we're um we're looking at here and uh the name okay they said the earliest spelling of the name was found in uh jeffrey of monmouth's uh vita merlini which was written around the year 1150 and that is morgen m-o-r-g-e-n which they say is likely derived from old welsh or old breton morgen meaning seaborne 
or from uh, common Britonic um, morigena, uh, masculine form, uh, which is, uh, so they go into the whole morigenos in Middle Welsh, um, etc., a shape-shifting female saint associated with the sea. Okay, so first we have this idea of Morgan as associated with the sea. Now, what do we know about sea deities and sea mythology? Well, if we look back um, to ancient Greece, and as you'll see in a moment, we have a reason to do so, um, the, the, sea, the, the, women who are, the, the seductive women of the sea, if you think of the sirens, for example, um, <clears throat> these, the, the, um, or, the, or the certain uh, nymphs or the, these um, other, other creatures that were somewhat monstrous, uh, we'll be talking about some of them, Scylla and Charybdis, for example, um, there's, and the, or, or, or the gray eye, there's this association of the sea with these, um, monstrous beings. And sometimes the feminine ones are, um, like in the Odyssey, we see this uh, in particular, they are, uh, you know, you, you have this, this connection to, uh, the emotions, you have this connection to seduction and to lust, but also all of the dangers that are inherent in that as I would say in Jungian terms, all the dangerous aspects of the anima. So, um, you have this, so you have, so, so of course, obviously, I mean, to say that, that Morgan Le Fay is an anima-like figure almost goes without saying. It's probably not even worth um, getting into, but she does, she does fill that kind of role as, as sort of the, uh, the, the temptress. But she has other aspects to her as well that... Um, you know, there's another aspect to the uh, to the seductress, the the, uh, the rejected seductress, uh, in some ways. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, okay, so we have this association of her with the sea. The sea is also associated with, in that sense, the collective. It's associated with the unconscious, and the fact that you have Morgan Le Fay living on the edge, in the same way that you do see figures like Baba Yaga, for instance. Um, you know, or even, you know, you, you have these, um, or we, we've seen in, for example, in Hindu mythology, uh, the goddess Matangi, who, who lives in the forests and represents um, that which is polluted, uh, but she is an element of uh, Sarasvati, so she, you know, she is a goddess of, of knowledge, and she deals, in her case, dealing more with, with the downtrodden or the ones who were considered untouchable. Um, but you have this woman who is seaborn but lives on the edge of things. So right there you have the the formula for a being who is uh, liminal and who is magical and who represents uh, this, you know, the fact that she's Morgan Le Fay or Fata Morgana, both of which are words for like Morgan the Fairy, it definitely suggests a connection to the other world of some kind. And in the legend, of course, it's through her, it could be her association with the island of Avalon, as a priestess there. Um, and it can also be her association with magic and witchcraft, which may be just something natural to her because there's almost an implication, even though she is Arthur's half-sister, stepsister, whatever, you know, in whatever way you want to look at it, um, there is also clearly something about her that is, um, that is otherworldly or uncanny. Okay, so, and of course, if we think about about nymphs and about the way in which they can shapeshift and the way in which they can be seductive. Um, you know, she, she has that sort of quality of, of a nymph or a water spirit. Okay. Um, now it says, um, now it's mentioned here, um, and I'm looking right now just at the etymology in Wikipedia, 
Uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth's description of Morgan and her sisters in the Vita Merlini closely resembles story of nine Gaulish priestesses of the Isle of Sina, now Ile de Sin, um, as described by the geographer Pomponius Mela during the first century, strongly suggesting that Pomponius's description of the world, uh, De Situ Orbis, was one of Jeffrey's prime sources. Um, and, it, and they also suggest that further inspiration may have come from Welsh folklore or medieval Irish literature. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, <clears throat> now, there was speculatively someone tries to associate her with the Morrigan. I think that's actually been very much disproven, so I'm not going to um, go down that uh, road. Um, so they also mention people who have been proponents of that idea of her as being associated with Morrigan, um, was, uh, Roger Sherman, uh, Loomis, um, and Loomis actually, he, he makes an interesting connection to, um, another work called, uh, Roman de Troy, which is, becomes the, it's a, it becomes the basis later of Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, and it's, uh, a story, I have a, I have a thing about it here. Um, that I wanted to to bring up. Um, there's a passage in this this poem, which was written. I want to say it was a few years, just a few years um, after uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth. So it's quite so. The uh, Loomis is not entirely sure whether or not uh, the poem is is influenced by um, the art, the art, you know, the earlier Arthurian poem, uh, Vita Merlani, but she. But there is a passage that refers to uh, Orva Le Fay in this this poem. Now, mind you, this poem is set in Troy. This is why I suggested this connection to ancient Greece, but at least at least the medieval conceptions of of Troy and and the legends of Troy. And so, this Orva Le Fay, who's uh, who he says he connects, he says, which he is not sure if it's he was not sure if it was a corruption of Panthesile, which is uh, the queen of the Amazons. Who appears in this poem? Um, she also appears actually in what they call the uh, the epic cycle, um, which are fragments of other works. You know, besides the Iliad about the Trojan War. Um, but he uses this name Orva, and she's supposedly a woman who is uh, who loves Hector but is rejected by him. Okay, and he tries to make the the case here, just judging from the way in different different versions of this same manuscript have represented the name Orva. In uh, six of them, he says that she's rep- it's represented as Morgan, 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 or Morgans. Um, and he says the ones that support that form, uh, you know, and they said, you know, 
that possibly that the author of this uh, poem may have may have you know may have read that poem and decided to make her uh, this kind of a figure. Now I don't want to get into all of the um, the etymologies and folkloric classifications and all that kind of stuff, um, whether this is true or not. What is interesting about it is that she becomes somebody who is uh, spurned or rejected in this particular narrative. So uh, in this case, it's Hector, who is the prince of Troy, who, uh, and of course, Troy is the one that um, is, is brought down. Um, ultimately, uh, they, you know, Troy loses the war um, and they're sacked. So it, and they were, you know, so they talk about how, um, you know, that, um, you know, but, but they talk about this, you know, this, this woman who is spurned by Hector, who goes by Orva Le Fay. And they're saying, if you, you know, it's not, he says it's not uncommon for the M to be dropped. So it may have been something like Morva Le Fay. Uh, and it, and it may have been, you know, may have had some connection to this, to this other work. Um, now it's Thomas Mallory who uses the, um, the, the epithet Le Fay. So I, whether or not Loomis's theory holds water or not, I don't know because that epithet doesn't seem to appear uh, prior to the 15th century. So, um, but but Thomas Mallory seems to be the one who refers to her as Morgan Le Fay. Um, so okay, so we, those those are some of the original sources that talk about her, and 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 again, it, it fleshes out our idea of of what what we're looking at here in the character of Morgan Le Fay. So we have several themes. So I'm going to go over these. Um, okay, so the theme of her as a healer, for one, okay, and this this uh, shape shifting and a shape shifting priestess potentially from the Isle of, of Avalon, um, as one who hates and not and fights against her half brother or or brother, you know, step brother, half brother Arthur, um, and also his wife Guinevere, uh, for reasons that are given in, in this case because she holds, um, you know, she connects Arthur, Arthur with, um, you know, the um, the affair of, you know, the, the way that, um, Ingrain, really, really the rape of Ingrain, because she assumes she's making love to her husband, but it's actually another man who's come in and, and, and taken her. So she's angry at that and supposedly hating Guinevere for interfering with her love affair with her nephew. Um, and also Guinevere is loved, you know, Lancelot, um, carries a, carries a torch for Guinevere, uh, which I'm sure also makes her, makes her angry. And this would make her, this actually also, as, as I was mentioning, ancient witches like Medea, and also uh, Kirke, because Kirke, in the story, as we're going to learn in a later podcast on the story of Scylla and Charybdis, um, Scylla is supposed to be a beautiful nymph who is loved um, by a centaur that um, that Kirke is in love with. and But he goes to Kirke to ask her to get, make a love spell to make this this um, this nymph fall in love with him. And Kirke tells him, oh, no, you know, don't, don't, tries to seduce him, don't pay attention, but he rejects Kirke. So she gets angry and ends up turning Scylla into this hideous monster with, like, multiple heads. Um, and um, so, again, there's, there's that theme of the, the witch woman who ends up being spurned um, by the, uh, you know, you know, by the desirable male lover of some kind. The, the desired one spurns them. And so the woman who uh, they're spurned for ends up, uh, you know, they, they get kind of a hateful revenge on the woman or seek to in some way. And that's, uh, and, and you know, that's, that's the theme also. Well, when we talked about the podcast on the goddess Hera, 
we see her doing that continually with her husband Zeus because he is continually cheating on her and she continually takes it out on the women associated with her. Okay, so so we have this idea of the sperm lady. And again, if if Loomis is right and she is indeed connected with uh, the Romain de Troyes, um, then she's also spurned by Hector in that particular poem. So there's this idea of this um, powerful and knowledgeable woman being spurred um, by these particular men. Um, and yes, the theme of her as a sorceress, as having this secret knowledge of and living on the edge and belonging to the other world. Um, and it's also the idea that not only is she extremely uh, um, amorous and a seducer, but also independent. And it seems like you you see a typecasting there where these these kinds of qualities are all put together. So in other words, the independent woman is also the sexually aggressive woman. Okay, she's she's the one who initiates things. She doesn't she doesn't wait to be chosen. She does the choosing. Um, Guinevere is abducted in in some of the Arthurian tales, um, but Morgan does the abducting. Okay, and the Lady of the Lake stands as an interesting foil to her, um, trying to thwart. Uh, her plans and to protect Arthur, which is uh, taken in a number of different ways. Now, some of the ways that this story has been talked about is a way of having to do with the status and role of women. And as we talked about in in previous podcasts, um, the whole idea of the dark feminine and the whole idea of the um, uh, woman who is, um, you know, first of all, who's independent, but also independent in her sexuality. Uh, as well as uh, having, as we talked about in the last podcast on Dame Ragnell, about having her sovereignty, you know, being in charge of herself, not subject to a man. You know, when she is married to Orion, she hates it. She hates him, and she tries to kill him. She's not interested in being married. She doesn't want to be a lady-in-waiting to uh, Guinevere. You know, she is, but she enters the court, and then she says no. And when she's invited back into that life, she says, no, I'm not going to be subject to you. I'm going to live in the wild, outside the fence, on my own terms. Um, And thus, this is also a woman who is knowledgeable in the ways of magic. And that also fits the motif, uh, fits a couple of different ones, really, because we see the dark feminine as also having that that hidden wisdom. It's like the Hecate aspect. You know, I have wisdom of what's what's hidden away in the underworld, um, which, of course, is considered to be dangerous in this particular environment, which which, um, spurns the underworld as being something evil. Um, or at least as something sinister uh, and associated with, you know, with hell and, and things like that. And certainly um, the Arthurian, you know, there, there, is, there are earlier pagan versions of the Arthurian legends, but certainly a lot of the context that we see for the courtly love and for these other aspects and, and these certain relationships um, come out of a chivalrous tradition that is born in the Middle Ages. And what we really see in Morgan is a, there's a battle against that chivalrous tradition. Um, now, or we see also from probably a couple hundred years after this, but we had, as we talked last about the wife of Bath's tale and the way in which she uh, defends women who have been married multiple times or, uh, you know, the, or the, you know, again, the, the narrative of Dame Ragnell, who's portrayed as this ugly, loathly lady, uh, but she is, but she, rep, you know, it, but turns beautiful when you give her her sovereignty. But there seems to be this other side to it that the woman with sovereignty who is too smart is also potentially going to be the adversary or adversary of the system, of this chivalric system 
that puts women um, in a certain position or a certain place that is that is subject to to others. Um, but I think what we need to to really look at here in this particular type of uh, narrative, okay, is the okay. First of all, there's these questions of female status. It seems to seems to come up often this idea of you know what what the role of a woman should be. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, I think it's just really interesting that this question goes back. We, we tend to think of uh, women's rights and we tend to think of women's, the independence of women as being a more modern issue. Say, for instance, something that's come since the 1960s with the dawn of birth control and things like that. And you saw a whole lot in popular culture about the dangers of giving women their own um, sexual independence. I mean, that's something I'll probably um, talk about at some other point, but there's a book um, called... Uh, what was it? It's w. Scott Poole, uh, Monsters in America. Okay, there's he has a whole chapter on um, the, the portrayal of the feminine there, and he he talks about when um, birth control first became a thing, when you talk about women's lib, when abortion rights were gained, and the way in which the church fought against this. You know, their encyclicals on the family and so forth, and where you started to see things in horror movies about sexually independent women, even movies like The Exorcist, for instance, where if you think about what's going on. The, the original story is a, supposed to be out a boy named Roland Doe, a 14-year-old who's supposedly possessed by the devil. Now, whether that story is true or not is, no, that's a totally different subject. But in the movie, it's not a boy, it's a girl. It's a girl who is just entering her adolescent years, so she's in Menarche. She's right on the edge of um, becoming a woman or just, you know, getting first period, like that that era of her life. And her mother is a single mother, independent and successful. Hmm, it's interesting, right? Um, so what happens to Reagan when, when she becomes the daughter, when she becomes uh, of sexual age? She becomes possessed by a demon. Interestingly, by a demon that actually protects children, but we won't get into that. Um, but it's, but it, it's, it's fascinating that that's a kind of movie that's produced at that time. So her mother is somebody who is uh, independent. She's, you know, there's no father there. She's not subject to any, you know, in that, if you want to think about it in these kinds of, um, we'll call them patriarchal terms. I know that's, a, that's an often overused word, but that's, in patriarchal terms, the idea that, you know, the husband is the one who is in charge. Um, it's, you know, and, and the wife is sort of subject to the husband, uh, so you have somebody who's not subject to a husband um, in a time period when women were, you know, fighting more to be more independent and do their own thing. Because um, you have to remember, too, around the time, like in the 1970s even, you still, a woman couldn't, for example, get a credit card by herself. You had to, you know, your husband had to sign for it. There's just certain things you couldn't do that your husband, because it was assumed you were going to have a husband because that's what you did, you know. But there had to be, and you know, and that that even continued on um, in other countries for quite a long time. I remember being in a class um, in the nineteen nineties. We had a guest lecturer. She was from I forget what I don't I no longer because this was over thirty years ago. I no longer remember which country she was from, but she'd come in from Africa, and whatever country she was in, she was saying, "Yeah," she says, "I you know, there's certain things I was not allowed to do in that country." I'd say, "Well." I need to, um, you know, rent a car or I need to do that. Oh, well, you need your husband's permission to do that. Like even in the 1990s, he was going through something like that. So, you know, again, maybe husband's permission may be, may be overkill these days, but nonetheless, there's this idea of the woman as not being sovereign. The woman is, is not having her own 
um, her own way. And here, when we look at Morgan Le Fay, you are looking at somebody, a woman who completely, you know, who is in control. There's nobody, her brother ultimately does not rule over her. And when she is, when she is invited to be part of that system where she would be ruled over, she rejects it. In fact, she's looking to just burn it all down, really. And instead, she is portrayed as the villain who is, you know, disrupting, you know, the the perfection of, of Arthur's court in some way. Um, and so, so it's, so it's interesting to see this in that this, this, this dialogue has been going on for a very long time. We tend to think of it as being taken for granted that this was the role of women, um, in, you know, certainly in ancient times, certainly in, in, in medieval times, that this is, um, certainly since the Christian era, although as we've seen, you know, the idea that the woman is supposed to get married and, and have the children and be the, you know, mother of the household or, you know, under under the under the, the father or the tribal king or whatever. That's that's as we see that that's 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 hardly it's it's certainly not a new idea in the Middle Ages. But we're seeing this questioning. Now the questioning could be even older than this, okay? Because there were many societies, particularly um, in what we'll call the British Isles, which I know is a term people hate, but um, but certainly in the different traditions in the areas up north, you know, women had a lot more independence. So there becomes this. So when it it clashes with a system that we see in um, what we might think of as uh, the, the the Christian idea of a relationship, which is um, not. You know, which again is not. I don't want to. I don't want to limit it just to Christianity because certainly this is an idea that goes before that. But you know, this 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 model of the obedient wife and mother, okay, um, like we saw with the Aori, you know, the the woman who's not obedient, you know, turns into a monstrous creature like the Lamia, or she's said to develop testicles or turn into a werewolf or something like that. Here we see this idea of Morgan Le Fay as just being this um, this this evil female force that has to be thwarted. But here here's really the crux of it, and this is where I think I'm going to end this, too, because I don't want to, um, you know, um, I don't want to go off on too many tangents. But the bottom line, it, it, this comes back to the idea, the subject-object idea that I think I talked about, I've talked about in several places. And... The whole notion of chivalry, you know, of the knight, you know, offering a token to his lady and, and, you know, or the bard, you know, the bards singing, you know, singing love songs, the idea of love as a chivalric thing, um, as opposed to marriages that were arranged for political reasons or convenient reasons, um, that there's a genuine love there between the two people. So oftentimes you will see love that happens between people who are not of the same station, for example, you know. The, the wealthy aristocratic woman falling in love with the, um, you know, the farmer's son or something. You know what I mean? It's something that is not socially considered to be part of that, um, that class structure uh, or defies it. So sometimes we think of courtly love as defying the, the class structure. But what we don't look at the fact is that courtly love also can turn, turns women into to objects to some degree. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not actually, um, this is, this is not meant to be a critique or saying, you know, people shouldn't, shouldn't fall in love on physical basis or anything like that. What I am saying is that, you know, this idea of chivalry puts women on a pedestal. That's the, that's the term that they use. And what I feel like is Morgan becomes a representation of fighting against this idea of woman as, as object to be adored as fetish object. 
it's actually no she's a woman she's in her own right she um she has her own power she has her own ability she has her own wisdom she's independent she has her own um you know sexuality which again of course sexuality in this motif you see lancelot for example you know besides the relationship with guinevere they're supposed to be chaste the knights they're not supposed to engage in sex because sex is now considered something like unclean and unholy and um and so morgan is really you know pulling us back towards the towards the chthonic towards the no the 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 power and the knowledge of the earth um the the deep power of sexuality um, and the idea that the w- woman is not, again, is not merely, you know, an object to be um, acquired, a thing, uh, not property, but rather um, an independent and intelligent being in her own right. Um, so ultimately, I think this is where it gets to um, e- even, I mean, certainly this may also apply to women's roles, but I feel like it also gets back to this embodiment of what the feminine is. And what I have always said is that the male power comes through the feminine. It comes through the, in, in Hindu terms, the Shakti. And uh, this this kind of trying to relegate um, Morgan Le Fay to a, you know, a lady-in-waiting kind of a role, a kind of, you know, obedient to the rules and the, the, the chivalric code of the court. Um, she's representing that wilder force that says no, um, you know, you're, you know, if you don't embrace that force, it destroys you. And, and you see this throughout Greek mythology. You, you know, you see it in Babylonian mythology with figures like uh, Ishtar. You see it in, um, you know, goddesses, uh, goddesses like Athena on the Trojan battlefield. When, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Greek warriors that respect her and respect her power are the ones that are successful. The ones that spurn her and say, go away, lady, I don't need your help, are the ones that end up um, doing horrific things, you know, being sucked down into whirlpools or committing suicide, you know, like uh, like both Ajaxes. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a reminder that that, because um, Arthur ultimately is brought down, you know, maybe not directly, but certainly through the cunning of Morgan Le Fay, he ends up being brought down, who in the end then turns around and says that she's going to heal him. So it's at that moment of defeat that the feminine that um, is looking to destroy you um, then, you know, turns around and takes on a, this protective role again, which, which reminds us that the, you know, that the feminine can be destructive, but it can also be very, uh, they can also be nurturing and healing, and those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um especially you know so so it, in other words it also flies in the face of this good versus evil dichotomy who's the hero and who's the villain um you know it's not always you know you know it, it's not it's not frequently not a a cut and dried kind of thing and certainly in legends like this the story becomes very complex that's it for this podcast thank you so much for listening um if you want to check out all of my work please check out cathonia.net uh, if you want to support my work and get extra podcast material, please visit patreon.com slash Chthonia. Those who contribute at the $5 level get at least one extra podcast a month. And um, we're hoping to add, you know, there's some other benefits as well that we're hoping to add and hoping to build that community there. So if you are interested in the subjects and would like to be more involved, um, please visit patreon.com slash Chthonia. Drop me a line there. And um, also, you can drop me a line on social media. Um, it's, I have Chthonia on YouTube. I do have YouTube community. So you can, you know, um, 
you know, I, if I post there, you can uh, post a message to me there. And also I'm on uh, both Facebook and Instagram, uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Facebook, I'm Cathonia Podcast, two words. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm Cathonia Podcast, one word. Uh, that's it for me in this episode. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Thank you so much to my patrons and see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.